thank you. And um, yes, my name is Paul Watson, and uh, I was the co-founder of Greenpeace and the uh, founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, which I left last year, and now I've uh, established the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And uh, that was to advance um, the strategy that I came up with in 1977 for addressing uh, conservation issues. And that's um, what I call aggressive nonviolence, which means that we're going to aggressively intervene, but we're not going to hurt anybody. And after 45 years, we've never caused a single injury to a single person. So I'm quite proud of, proud of that record. But we have shut down hundreds of illegal operations around the world against poachers uh, and uh, illegal whaling operations, that kind of thing. Uh, when I looked at the uh, topic here to address was how do we fix a broken planet? Uh, well, the short answer to that is we can't. Uh, we don't have to be concerned about the planet. We have to be concerned about ourselves. The planet will do quite well. Uh, there's been five major extinction events in the history of this planet. Uh, we're now in the midst of the sixth extinction event uh, called the uh, Anthropocene and uh, because we're responsible for it. And what that means is that between uh, the year 2000, the year 2065, we will lose more plants and animal species than we have lost in the last 65 million years. And uh, we're responsible for that. Now, in 2015, I was asked to speak at the uh, UN conference on uh, the, the COP21 conference in Paris uh, on, on climate change. And uh, one of the things I noticed right off when they first started this is that nobody was talking about the ocean. It wasn't even on the agenda. So I had to get in there and, and get them to put it on the agenda, which they did. But uh, unfortunately, uh, it was primarily sponsored. The, the ocean agenda was primarily sponsored by the seafood industry, which uh, really, I think, missed the point. But the question of uh, what do we do to protect the ocean? And again, the answer is nothing. In fact, all we do need to do is leave it alone, let it recover from the damage that we've done to it. But to do nothing, of course, you have to do something. And what that means is we have to shut down industrialized, mechanized uh, commercial fishing operations around the world. And of course, uh, that's not gonna really happen because there's too much invested in it. But that is the source of the depletion of life in our ocean is out of control, industrialized uh, fishing. Now, since 1950, the year I was born actually, since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. For the most part, people are completely unaware of that. But you can look it up. It's, uh, it was in Scientific America in 2010. They had the first article on this. And a 40% diminishment of phytoplankton. And what that means is that a 40% diminishment in those species of plants, aquatic plants that provide up to 70% of the oxygen in the air that we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. And why is this happening? Because we're diminishing life in the ocean. We're diminishing the population of whales and dolphins and seabirds and turtles and fishes. And they are literally the farmers of phytoplankton because what they provide are the nutrients that phytoplankton require to flourish, and that is iron and magnesium and uh, nitrogen. And uh, so when you reduce or diminish those species, you're diminishing the, the nutrients supplied to the phytoplankton. Uh, 30% of our uh, oxygen comes from trees like the Amazon, Amazon jungles and whatever, but 70% comes from phytoplankton. And then the reality is this, if phytoplankton disappears, we die. 
We don't live on this planet without phytoplankton. It is the foundation of life in the ocean. Not only is it providing oxygen, sequestering CO2, but it's also the uh, bottom of the food pyramid for everything in the ocean to feed the fishes, to feed the whales. And uh, so it's a circulatory system within the, the sea, which has worked you know, beautifully for millions of years until we came along and intervened. And uh, anytime human beings intervene uh, to try and address, try to even repair the problems, we usually cause another problem uh, in that respect. But the reality of, of it is, is that every single commercial fishing industry on the planet right now is in a, is in a state of collapse. And there is no such thing as a sustainable fishery. So again, of 35, 40% of the fish that is caught isn't even caught legally. It's caught illegally and there's hard, they, they can't control it. There's no way to trace it. The transshipment of, uh, of the fishes at seas, the uh, poaching that takes place in areas which are supposedly supposed to be protected. In fact, these protected areas are where the poachers go because there's no enforcement. Just a month and a half ago, uh, the UN passed the, uh, uh, the Ocean Treaty, but it means nothing. It's just words on paper. Without enforcement, it means nothing. And there's a complete lack of uh, economic and political motivation on the part of governments to actually do anything about this. The ocean outside the 200 mile limit is the Wild West and people get to do whatever they want to do. That's why in 1977, I decided to go out and intervene because if there is no law enforcement, then somebody had to do something. And uh, the United Nations World Charter for Nature allows for non-government organizations, individuals or governments to go out and uphold the, the, uh, the laws of the sea. Uh, and spe specifically in areas beyond national jurisdictions, which we've been addressing. That's why for 45 years, I've been able to intervene against illegal operations at sea. And uh, I've never been convicted of a felony crime for doing so. And uh, in some cases, of course, it came quite uh, controversial, like in 1986, when the International Whaling Commission passed the uh, commercial moratorium on, on whaling, and uh, Japan, Norway, and Iceland decided to just ignore that moratorium, thus violating international conservation law. So in 1986, we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet at Dockside in Reykjavik Harbor and destroyed their whale processing plant and shut them down for a number of years. Now that might seem highly illegal. And uh, I asked them what the charges were and there were no response. So I flew to Reykjavik uh, a year later and demanded to be, uh, be arrested. And they brought me in for interrogation and asked, are, are you saying that you sunk these ships? I said, well, you know, we sunk the ships. We're gonna sink the other two at the first opportunity. Well, then I was escorted to the airport and deported out of the country at no charges. The Minister of Justice stood up in uh, the Althing, the parliament in Iceland that uh, year, that month, and he said, or that day, and he said, uh, who does he think he is? He comes into our country and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. Well, the reason being is they knew that to put me on trial would be to put themselves on trial, and they didn't want to do that. So sometimes to make a difference, you really have to go out there and take those risks. In 1979, I went after a pirate whaler called the Sierra, which had been operated with impunity for 10 years, and uh, nobody was able to do anything about it. So I left out from the port of Boston, crossed the Atlantic, and I found it off the coast of Portugal, and I chased it into the port, and then I rammed it twice and ended its career. I was brought before the port captain in Portugal, and I was charged with uh, gross criminal negligence. 
And that is until uh, I said to the captain, there wasn't anything negligent about it. I hit that ship exactly where I intended to hit it. It was deliberate, not negligent. And he laughed and he said, well, I also can't find out who owns that ship. And until I can, you're, you're free to go. So, you know, that the career of that pirate whaler was ended. And then we shut down another pirate whaler in the Canary Islands, two more in South Africa. And uh, we sank half of the uh, Spanish whaling fleet in the port of Beagle, who are in violation of their quotas on, on fin whales. So taking it into our hands to uphold those laws. Now that might be considered vigilanteism and probably is, but uh, you know, when there is no law enforcement, we're the only sheriff in town really. And the reason we can get away with what we're doing is because they get away with what they're doing. So if they can break the law, then we can appear to break the law in defense of upholding that law. It's a complicated situation. But anyway, that's what we've been doing for, for, for many years. Now, I think the real problem that's, uh, that the planet Earth faces is ourselves and our attitude, our philosophical understanding of who we are and what we are, and what our place is on this planet. For 10,000 years, uh, human beings have uh, been under the uh, illusion, which I call anthropocentrism, this idea that everything was created for us. It's all about us. We're the only species that really matters. And, uh, you know, all other species are irrelevant. When in fact, the reality is we're just a bunch of overly conceited naked apes who have become divine legends in our own mind. We think we're godlike and we're not. There are three laws of ecology. The first of the law is the law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. The second is the law of interdependence, that species within an ecosystem are interdependent with each other. And third is the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth and a limit to carrying capacity. And when one species steals the carrying capacity of other species that causes diminishment in both diversity and interdependence, and that leads to ecological collapse. Now, why I'm not that worried about it in the, law, in the larger scheme of things is that we're in the, major, in the sixth major extinction, but there's been five major extinction events in the history of this planet. The Permian extinction took out 97% of everything in the ocean, 76% of everything on land. But what do all of those major extinction events have in common? It takes 18 to 20 million years for a full recovery. So no matter what we do, 18 to 20 million years from now, this planet will still be a beautiful planet and evolution will replace everything that we destroyed. Well, one thing for sure, we won't be here in 18 to 20 million years ago. So really I look on the conservation environmental movement, not as something to save the planet, but really to save ourselves from ourselves and all those other species that we would uh, take with us in, into our demise, because we will destroy ourselves really through our own ecological stupidity. My life was changed uh, on, uh, on one single day in the month of June of 1975. We had come up with this idea to protect uh, whales and we're reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, and we felt all we had to do was put our bodies between the, the whales and the harpoons, and the, harp and the whalers wouldn't kill them. We went out in search of the Soviet whaling fleet, which we found 65 miles off the coast of California. This was before the 200-mile limit. And Robert Hunter and I found ourselves in a small little inflatable boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel bearing down on us at full speed, about 20 knots. And in front of us were eight magnificent sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. 
And every time the harpooner tried to take a shot, I would maneuver the boat to block that shot. And this worked for about 20 minutes until the captain on the Soviet vessel came running down the catwalk, screamed into the ear of the harpooner, looked down at us, smiled, brought his finger across his throat. And that's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to work for us that day. And a few moments later, there's a incredible explosion. This harpoon flew over our heads, slammed into the backside of one of the whales in the pod. Was a, it was a female and she screamed. I didn't even know whales could scream, but she screamed. There's a fountain of blood water, you know, and suddenly the largest whale in that pod rose up and slammed the water with his tail and dove and swam right underneath of us and threw himself at the bow of the harpoon, where the harpooner was. And he was waiting with, for him with an unattached harpoon, knowing that he would protect his pod. And as the whale's head came up and out of the water towards that bow, he pulled the trigger and hit the whale point blank in the head with an explosive harpoon. The whale fell back in the water, thrashing in agony, blood everywhere. And as it rolled on the surface of the sea, I caught its eye and he dove again. And now I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight towards our small little boat. And he came up and out of the water at an angle. So the next move was to come down on top of us and crush us. And as his head rose up out of the sea, and I looked into that eye, an eye the size of my fist, an eye where I could see my own reflection that was that close. I saw something that changed my life. It was understanding. That whale understood what we were trying to do because I could see the incredible effort he made to pull himself back. And instead of coming down and collapsing on top of us, he began to slide backwards into the sea. I saw his eye disappear beneath the surface and he died. He could have killed us, but he chose not to do so. But I also saw something else in that eye, pity, not for himself, but for us, that we could take life so thoughtlessly, mercilessly. And why? Why were we killing that whale? The Russians do, don't eat whale meat. Nobody eats sperm whale meat, I mean. And, but they kill them for oil, high heat resistant uh, oil, lubricating oil, both sperm oil and spermaceti oil. And one of the things that was the Russians very much uh, valued about spermaceti oil is for the lubrication of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said to myself, here we are, you know, destroying this incredibly intelligent, beautiful, self-aware, sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it hit me. We're insane. We're ecologically insane. I mean, war is a, the ultimate form of insanity. And um, I said to myself at that time, I'm gonna do everything in my life to protect them, not us, but them. They are my clients and have been ever since. So in 1986, after we sank half of uh, Iceland's whaling fleet, I was approached by some environmental colleagues uh, at the International Whaling Commission. And uh, they said, we just wanna let you know that what you did in Iceland was, uh, was criminal, reprehensible, unforgivable. And I said, yes, yeah, so do you, why do I care? And they said, are, are you concerned about how people think of you? I said, no, not at all. We didn't, we didn't sink those, the, the, those whaling ships in Iceland for you or for the environmental movement or for any human being. We sank them for the whales. Find me a whale that disagreed with what we did that day and I promise you we won't do it again. But that's who our clients are. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Excuse me. Anthropocentrism is, a, is, more, is basically a form of collective uh, mass psychosis. 
and uh, believing that we everything was on this planet was created for us, that everything revolves around us is delusional. Uh, we've even created our own gods to answer the question of why we were created. But in fact, we're part of the biology along with everything else. We're all interdependent with, interdependent with all other species. A few years ago, I had a reporter, Brett Hume from the Fox Network called me up and uh, he said, did you say at a lecture that whales and trees, bees and uh, worms were more important than people? I said, yeah, I, I did in fact say that. And he said, how could you say something so, so, so horrible? I said, well, because whales and worms and trees and bees are more important than people. And the reason being is they can live here without us. But we cannot live here without them. We need them. They don't need us. It's as simple as that. We owe our existence to phytoplankton, worms, trees, bees, whales, and all these other species. Without them, we don't exist. Without phytoplankton, the ocean dies. And if phytoplankton dies, the ocean dies, and we all die. We cannot live on this planet with a dead ocean. Which leads me to um, explain something which uh, I just recently wrote a children's book about. Because um, people say, well, I don't live near the ocean. What's that got to do with me? The reality is you do live near the ocean. In fact, you live in the ocean. In fact, you are the ocean. And what, what I mean by that, what is this planet? It's the, it's the water planet. It's the ocean planet. And that means it's water and constant and continuous circulation. Sometimes it's in the sea and sometimes it's in the clouds and sometimes it's underground and sometimes it's locked in ice and sometimes it's in the cells of every living plant and animal. So the water that's in our bodies right now was once recently underground or locked in ice or once in the body of other animals or, or in, the, uh, in plants. In fact, it's been a continuous thing for so long that uh, the glass of water that you drink today was once probably the same molecules that were drunk by a dinosaur. Uh, it's the constant continuation of that and most essential element for life, which is water. So the answer to what is the ocean is we are the ocean. This is the ocean planet. And uh, what so that means that what we do on land will in, impact what is done in the sea and in the atmosphere and underground. Right now, factory farming, for example, the killing of 65 to 80 billion animals every year is a major source of groundwater pollution, a major source of dead uh, zones in the ocean, a major contributing factor to uh, uh, greenhouse gases being released. And it's also a major contributing factor to the release of uh, zoonomic transmission of viruses. That's why every year we kill millions and millions of animals on factory farms to try and keep a lid on the uh, release of uh, viruses uh, to other animals and to other species. When you diminish a, a, an ecosystem, when you diminish the number of species within it, you create a situation of, of chaos because every plant and every animal has beneficial viruses associated with it. We could not live on this planet without, uh, without uh, these viruses. But when you diminish one species, the virus associated with that species has to go somewhere. And uh, that's called zoonomic transmission, going on to another species. And I mean, for instance, the common cold we got from horses and we got flu from pigs and birds and things like this. And so this is going to be more and more of a problem as uh, 
as we diminish species and ecosystems. And added to that, of course, is the melting of uh, the permafrost, which is releasing uh, pathogens, which have been locked up for tens of thousands of years. I mean, in 2017, we had uh, an outbreak of anthrax uh, in uh, Siberia, or excuse me, Northern Finland, which killed uh, over a thousand reindeer and killed one human being. And that was because of a reindeer body that was uh, frozen and then unfrozen and released uh, the spores for that reason. That's gonna be more and more of an oncoming problem. Um, uh, in Laurie Garrett's book uh, published in 1995 called The Coming Plague, she predicted a, lo a lot of this happening. And what we've seen over the years since is, you know, West Nile virus, Zika virus, Ebola, all of these are genomic transmitted viruses. And we're also seeing it in other species, factory farming or uh, salmon, like on salmon farms and aquatic salmon farms are passing uh, viruses from themselves to indigenous salmon species, say in British Columbia. What you have here is you're taking an exotic predator, the Atlantic salmon, which does not belong in the Pacific, putting it into a Pacific ecosystem in a concentrated form where it comes very, um, you know, attracts disease. And, that, and that to address that, they, they use a lot of antibiotics and a lot of chemicals to keep that in balance. But the disease then will move to indigenous populations. And the other problem is, of course, uh, sea lice, which uh, are built up in the salmon farms. And as the fingerlings come down from the wild on the wild salmon populations, fingerlings transfer to these uh, young salmon and uh, kill them. So because of domestic salmon farms, uh, there's been a quite a diminishment in indigenous fish populations, salmon populations especially. Now, the other th problem is that uh, the uh, chemicals that they use sink to the bottom, killing uh, in, uh, invertebrates and crustaceans, uh, other creatures. So it's a very, very unhealthy system. And quite frankly, I don't understand why we allow it. If I were to take a piranha or a couple of piranhas and stick them into uh, a lake in the southern United States and say, you know, go on and breed, that would be criminal. I would be arrested for that. But why would we allow a uh, an Atlantic predator to be introduced into an ecosystem it doesn't belong for no other reason than it's a billion dollar industry. And uh, so these are the things that we're causing problems with all along going through it. Another way I think to put this in perspective is to look at the planet for what it is. We are a spaceship and we're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy. It takes 250 million years just to make one revolution of the galaxy. And uh, that spaceship has a life support system, provides us the air we breathe and uh, sequesters uh, CO2 and regulates climate and temperature and provides the food that we eat. And that life support system is run by a crew, a crew of engineers, and not us. We human beings, we're... Uh, we're uh, passengers, we're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves, entertaining ourselves, but we're, we're not engineers. The engineers are the bacterium and the worms and the bees and the trees and the other creatures that we are dependent upon. But what we are doing is we're murdering them, we're killing them off. And there's only so many engineers you can kill before that life support system begins to, to, to uh, may not be maintained, begins to fall apart. And if that falls apart, of course, that life support system will directly affect our ability to survive on this planet. We need those bees out there. We need those worms in the ground. We need those whales uh, providing the nutrient base for, for phytoplankton. We can no longer pretend that we're the only species that, that really matters.
Uh, and it's going to be very difficult because anthropocentric attitudes are so ingrained into our, uh, our very being for the last 10,000 years. And how, how, do you, how do you recover that? Anthropocentrism is also responsible for all of the wars that we uh, have engaged in for thousands of years. Wars over territory, wars over religion, and that wars over this understanding that not only are we the only thing in nature to, uh, to be valued, but our particular tribes are more important than all other tribes. And, uh, you know, so biocentrism as an, as an attitude actually removes the need for war, racism, misogyny, and uh, so many other ills that impact us because what biocentrism means is the understanding we're part of everything, that we're part of this whole, not superior, not inferior, but part of. And uh, if we learn to live in harmony with all other species, and that means we learn to live in harmony with ourselves, then I think that that is a, a real path to going forward. But it's a difficult path to follow because uh, we don't want to let go of our these collective mass psychosis uh, things, which people call religion. Just even mentioning that is bound to upset a lot of people. But all dominant religions on this planet are anthropocentric based, all putting us as, at the center. Indigenous populations around the world have more biocentric uh, religious points of view where they understand that link between us and, our, uh, and all these other species. But the anthropocentric religions completely isolate all the other species out of the, out of the equation. The other problem we have is this incredible ability to adapt to diminishment. And this served us really well 10, 12, 20,000 years ago when we had to adapt to diminishment and we became very good at it. The problem is today is we're rapidly adapting to diminishment of things which are necessary for our survival. As one species disappears, we simply move on to another species. In the 1990s, orange roughy, a fish that was caught mainly around New Zealand, was in supermarkets around the world. I remember it quite vividly. And uh, it was, was much in demand. The problem with orange roughy is that unlike salmon, which take four years to become sexually mature and dies, the orange roughy takes 50 years or 45, 45 years to become sexually mature and lives to be 200 years of age. That kind of fish cannot keep up with our demand. And so they were overfished and haven't recovered. Just as a Northern Atlantic cod, its population crashed in 1992. It has not recovered. So this is um, this adaptation to diminish is the reason for that. If this was 1965, and I were to say to you, you know, in 40 years time, you're gonna be buying water in plastic bottles. And you're gonna be paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline. You would have looked at me like, nobody's gonna do that, but here we are. I was in a hotel in New York and they had a liter of water. I could buy it if I wanted it, it was $12 a liter. $12 a liter for water 
in a country where gasoline was selling what four to five dollars a gallon. So that's twelve dollars. So that's forty eight dollars a gallon is what they were asking for that water. I mean, it's outrageous, but that's the reason Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and all these other companies are heavily invested in the water industry because, you know, there was no water industry back in the 50s and 60s. You wanted a glass of water, it came out of the tap. And uh, that, and even when it's healthy water, we don't drink it if it comes out of a tap. I mean, New York City water is probably the healthiest water in the country. And in fact, it's so healthy that uh, they actually sell bottles of it in Los Angeles, bottled as New York City tap water. You know, so but we've come so accustomed, so accustomed to buying water in bottles and cans. And at the same time, going through a billion plastic containers every year in all of these water co uh, companies and even the aluminum containers inside every aluminum can is a plastic liner. So you don't get around that. And that, of course, has led to plastic pollutions in the sea to a point where it's so out of control that by 2040, there will probably be more plastic in the ocean than fish. And the real problem is microplastics. When then they break down into those microparticles, which get into the bodies of fish. If you eat fish, you've got microplastics in your body. And they get into the zooplankton and, you know, comes from all sorts of sources. One of the major contributors that was discovered in a, a study off of Norway was that uh, was automobile tires, not the whole tire, but the tiny bits that come off as you drive down the, uh, uh, the freeway or the highway. And those tiny bits are washed into the drains and that ends up into the marine ecosystem. So microplastics are gonna become a major, major problem. Other problems in the ocean, of course, are noise pollution. And uh, even for the best of intentions, I mean, for instance, the construction of uh, wind turbines off the East Coast is going to lead to the killing of many, many whales, dolphins, and other species because of the incredibly high decibel levels, not from the windmills, but from the, uh, the pile drivers that are used to drive these gigantic uh, piles 30, 40 meters into the ground. Now, there are alternatives. They could use concrete, large concrete boxes that then could be sunk and would be able to hold the thing, but that's a more expensive technology. So rather than spend the money on that technology, they'd rather go with the pile driving and pile driving will kill enormous amounts of marine uh, life because life in the sea cannot engage in that kind of, uh, that kind of high decibel levels. One of the other things about our anthropocentrism is that uh, we have this feeling or this belief or understanding that we're the most intelligent species on the planet. We really believe that. I was debating a whaler in Norway one time and he said, Watson, you say whales are more intelligent than people. How could you say anything so stupid? I said, well, George, I happen to measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with our ecosystems. And by that criteria, whales are more intelligent than we are. And his answer to that was, well, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. And I said, George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you. Yes, all species are intelligent in accordance to their position within the ecosystem. And their primary function is to survive within that ecosystem and to contribute at the same time. We're now coming to an understanding where trees and plants communicate with each other you know, they don't talk to each other, but they certainly communicate through a fungal network. And um, we know that whales communicate with each other, dolphins communicate with each other. And again, we come down to the intelligence. What, what is a measure of intelligence to us? It's 
It's tools. Hand-to-eye coordination, the ability to make tools. That's what we define as intelligence. If a blob of protoplasm stepped out of a spaceship in front of us and it had a ray gun, well, that thing is obviously intelligent because it's got technology. But how do you measure intelligence which is non-manipulative, that doesn't have a need for tools? The human brain is approximately 700 cubic centimeters. The orca brain is 6,000 cubic centimeters. The sperm whale brain is 9,000 cubic centimeters, the largest brain to ever evolve on the planet. And cetacean brains are far more complex than human brains. The convolutions on the neocortex area are far more pronounced, and they have four lobes of the brain to where we have three. Their communication abilities are incredible. We just don't understand it. But you know, who are we to say that they are not intelligent? Who are we to destroy them for our petty needs because we believe that they're inferior. It's sort of the same attitude of the Ubermunch, you know, the inferior human beings, while we look down on other species as being inferior to us. But they feel, they see, they dream, they understand, they love, they communicate. We know that. And yet we choose to not know it. We want to love our dogs, but we want to eat our pigs is really what it comes down to. We just sort of detach from the reality of what we're doing to the pigs. And then we go and pet our dogs and say, good boy. Uh, so it's this ability to do that detachment, which is, which really is, I think, I think is a form of mental illness, really. So that's, uh, you know, a situation there that we have with that. Now, over the years, I've uh, managed to... Um, get a lot of things done through an understanding of the culture that we live in. We live in a media culture, and that's why I've always held the uh, view that the most powerful weapon on the planet is the camera. And uh, with a camera, we can achieve a lot. That's one of the reasons we did our own television show called Whale Wars, that we do documentaries like Sea Spiracy and uh, Sea of Shadows, and that is because we know that to reach people, the camera is the way to do it. The camera is far more powerful than, than the gun. And uh, again, in a media culture, you have to understand how that works because the media, we're talking about the mainstream media here. They only under, the, the mainstream media only understands four elements, four things, there's four elements of media, sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. If it doesn't have one of those elements, it's not even a news story. If it has all of those elements, you got yourself a super story. I learned this lesson uh, quite, uh, <laughs> vividly back in 1979, no, excuse me, 1977, when I took Bridget Bardot out to the ice flows in Newfoundland to get her picture taken with baby seals. Her picture, cheek to cheek with a baby seal, that gave us a cover of every major magazine on the planet. And that's when I realized celebrity is a, is a, a tactic that can be used. And that's one of the reasons that we built up a celebrity board of advisors over the years. And I sort of jokingly say that because we, you know, have Pierce Brosnan and uh, oh, Richard Dean Anderson and uh, let me see, and uh, Christian Bale and others that how can we lose? We got we got Batman, we've got uh, MacGyver, we got uh, and we got Captain Kirk. So, you know, we can't lose. We also got the president of the United States, Martin Sheen. A lot of people actually think he was president of the United States, strangely enough. But as a. Uh, Rudger Hauer once said to me, he said, yeah, we don't really know a lot, but everybody thinks we know a lot. So we might as well put that to good use. And so when we come out and champion a cause, we get listened to. And that is a reality of that. Back in um, 
1984, I, I organized a campaign to stop the killing of wolves in British Columbia and the Yukon. And it was a highly successful media campaign. It gave us headlines for two solid weeks across Canada. And because it had all four elements, it had them uh, killing wolves uh, in, from helicopters, they're violent, they're threats to kill us if we interfered, violence. Um, we had an environment minister who we exposed taking a bribe from big game hunting organizations, scandal. I recruited Bo Derrick as our spokesperson for that campaign. At the press conference, uh, a reporter for the Vancouver Sun said, come on, what does Bo Derrick know about wolves? This is stupid having her as your director. I said, well, if I had the best wolf biologist in the world, Dr. Gordon Haber, Dr. David Mack, it'd be an empty room, but because uh, she's here, uh, it'll be the front page full story of your newspaper tomorrow, and there's nothing you can do about it. And of course, that it was. Just a few years ago, I had to deal with a problem where they had captive orcas and belugas in Russia. We wanted to get the Russian government to release them. I wrote a speech to the Russian parliament. They're not going to listen to me. That, I understood that. So I simply sent Pamela Anderson over to deliver that speech, and the belugas and orcas were released. So again, that shows the power of celebrity, and it's something that we've used over the years quite effectively. And again, with the media, there's always a perception that what we're doing or have done is illegal or wrong. And, you know, I once I did the Bill Maher show one time and uh, he said, well, some people call you an eco-terrorist. And I said, well, I've never worked for Monsanto, so I don't think that that, uh, that applies. And the fact is, we've never injured anybody. What is aggressive nonviolence? If a person is about to shoot an elephant, and you hit the, knock the gun out of his hand, don't hurt him, but knock the gun out of his hand, save the elephant's life. That is an act of nonviolence. Uh, as Martin Luther King once said, uh, that you cannot commit violence against a non-sentient object. You know, it's a protection of life that remains important. A few years ago, there was an incident in Zimbabwe where a ranger shot and killed uh, a poacher who was about to kill a black rhinoceros. And human rights groups around the world attacked him viciously. How dare you take the life of a human being, protect an animal? And his response, I think, was very uh, revealing. He said, well, if I was a police officer in Harare and a man ran out of Barclays Bank with a bag of paper money and I shot him in the head and killed him, you'd call me a hero and print a medal on me. So why is a bag of paper worth more than the future heritage of the whole nation of Zimbabwe? It's that kind of hypocrisy within human beings, I think, that is part of our problem, is that we value things. We don't value life. You know, imagine, if you will, going into the city of Mecca, walking up to the Black Stone and spitting on it. Well, your chances of walking out alive from that city are somewhat remote. You're walking to Tel Aviv and attack uh, the Wailing Wall with a pickaxe, and you're going to get an Israeli soldier's bullet in the back. Or walk into Rome and attack the Pieta with a hammer, and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're attacking something which is sacred, which means something to so many people. Yet every day, we walk into the most beautiful, most pristine cathedrals of the natural world, the rainforest of Amazonia, the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia, and we desecrate these cathedrals with bulldozers and dredgers and chainsaws. And how do we respond? 
Uh, we send a few petitions in, write letters to the politicians, whatever. But if the uh, if the rainforest of Amazonia or the Great Barrier Reef of uh, off Australia were as value to us, or we consider them as sacred, like we do a old meteorite in Mecca, a chunk of marble in Rome, or an old wall in Tel Aviv, we would be outraged and we would rise up and defend it. But we don't get that outraged over these things because they're, they don't mean that much to us. I, I kind of like the Dalai Lama's response when they blew up the, uh, the Taliban, blew up the uh, statues in Afghanistan, the Buddhist statues, and everybody was outraged except for the Dalai Lama. And he said, they're just stones. He says, it means nothing and everything. They're non-sentient objects and everything. And so he understood that. Back in 1985, I actually uh, received a visit from two uh, Tibetan monks and uh, they gave me uh, this small little color ball statue of sort of a dragon and horse combination. And uh, they said, you can put it up on your mask for protection. And, you know, I'm not a very superstitious person, but okay, I'll put it up on the mask. And I didn't think anything up there. It was up there for a number of years. and. Um, then in 1989, I had the opportunity to uh, have lunch with the Dalai Lama in Washington. And I asked him the question, I showed him the picture of it. I said, what is this? And he says, it's, well, it's called Hayagriva. And I said, what's that mean? He says, well, it's the compassionate aspect of the wrath of the Buddha. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he says, well, you never want to hurt anybody, but sometimes when they cannot see enlightenment, scare the hell out of them until they do. <laughs> and, he, and he said that with a laugh. And so he understood that that's what we were trying to do. That's, and that's why I was able to get his endorsement for the work that we were doing. And uh, it's because he understood that we were trying to make people aware of the reality of what we're doing to the natural world. But at the same time, to not hurt anybody in the process. There can be never can be any justification for, uh, for the taking of life or the injuring of another person. And, you know, I'm proud of the unblemished record that I've had over the last half a century, really, and not, not doing that. But even prouder still of the lives we saved, the 6,500 whales that we saved in the Southern Ocean when we drove the Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean. It took 10 years of confrontations, but every year we cut into their quotas by blocking, harassing, and preventing them from killing whales. And it was a very successful campaign because of that. And... Uh, Finally, they were driven out. Unfortunately, it looks like they might be going back. And if they do go back, well, we'll have to be prepared to be there. This summer, I'm taking a, a ship to uh, the North Atlantic, to Iceland, where uh, this one guy who is a modern day Captain Ahab called Christian Lawson, uh, he wants to kill up to 169 endangered fin whales, which is a violation of the International Whaling Commission's global moratorium on whaling. And uh, we intend to save those whales. So we're going to be going up there to do just that, using that strategy of aggressive nonviolence. And uh, I, I'm confident that we'll be able to make a difference. And then we can move on to protecting um, whales off the coast of Norway. And that there's always something to do. And, uh, you know, the, the, the only way we can do that is through hands-on uh, operations. And I'm proud of the fact that uh, we've been able to achieve all of this because of the passion, the imagination, and the courage of all of those people, those, those volunteers that have worked with me over the years and continue to do so. You can't really buy that kind of you know, loyalty and allegiance. Um, <clears throat> I used to ask, and still do actually, ask crew members, are you willing to risk your life to protect a whale? 
And if they say no, then I said, well, then <clears throat> we, we can't use you. And, you know, journalists have asked me, well, that's a little unreasonable asking people to risk their life to protect a whale. I said, well, I don't think so. In our culture, uh, we ask young people to not only risk their life, but to give their life for wars over real estate and oil wells and religion and, and, and flags and things like this. I think it's a far more noble pursuit to risk your life to protect an endangered species or to protect a, an endangered ecosystem. We just have to get our priorities right. Why are we willing to die for oil wells, but we're not willing to die to protect life on, on this planet? You know, people ask me, well, why don't uh, you pursue this politically? Well, the problem with politics is that they can't really make decisions because it's the art of the possible. Any politician who actually steps up to the plate and does something that's going to really make a difference it's going to get voted out at the next election or overthrown if it's an autocratic sort of person. You know, the public wants things to change, but they don't really want to change. And when somebody comes around and begins to change things, well, you know, they don't really appreciate that. I remember in 2015 at the, uh, at the COP21 conference, uh, the darling of the conference was Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, he was going to do this. He was going to be uh, address indigenous rights. He was going to protect the environment. But he had just been elected, and he could say those things. He went back to Canada and championed the Power Sands project, the pipelines, the uh, you know going through indigenous lands. Uh, broke every promise he made, which is pretty par, par for the course for, for for many many politicians. So you just can't do these things uh, through the political structure. All change comes through the passion and the courage of individuals. I think it was anthropologist Margaret Mead who said that quite eloquently. And uh, she said, don't expect governments or corporations to change the world. They never have, they never will. It comes through the passion of individuals and individuals can make such a difference. Look what Greta Thunberg has uh, been able to do, a high school girl. And she's been able to read, meet down with leaders and talk to people and get her word out to millions of people. You know, because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, we still have the Bermuda storm petrel in Bermuda. So many people around the world who have made a real difference because they were passionately got involved with something. And when uh, young people ask me, well, what should I do? I just say, find something that you're passionate about and apply yourself. Use your skills and your abilities towards doing what you can to address that issue even if it's a seemingly impossible task, because you got to remember that the answer to an impossible problem is the impossible solution. And that is found through passion, courage, and imagination. The very idea in 1972 that Nelson Mandela would one day be president of South Africa was unthinkable and therefore impossible. And yet the impossible happened. I believe that, that impossible solutions can be found. And also, I don't think that there's any need to be pessimistic or depressed about the state of the world or the future, especially not for the future. Back in 1973, I volunteered for the American Indian Movement to be a medic in, uh, during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. We were surrounded by 3,500 federal agents who were shooting into the village. They killed two, wounded 46. And uh, I went to speak with Russell Means, who is a leader for the American Indian Movement, he and Dennis Banks. And I said, uh, Russell, we, I mean, we, we don't have any hope of winning here. The odds against us are overwhelming. So what are we doing? And his answer to me 
has stayed with me throughout the years. He said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right thing to do, the right place to be, and uh, the right time to do it. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. You have no power over the future, but you have absolute power over the present. What you do in the present will define what the future will be. And that's really how we, have, we should really look at this. What can we do now that's going to make this a better world? Let's not worry about the future. Let's work in the present to define that future. And uh, so I have hope, I mean, but we also have to face the reality of this. Young people, especially, people who were born in this century, they will never ever see what I saw uh, when I was younger, when I was a child. I happened to live in the most materially wealthy, freest time in the history of humanity. It'll never come again, never come again. We don't have the resources to, uh, to continue to support that. I had a pretty good idea of what the world was gonna be like when I got older. Young people today don't have that. They don't know what the world is gonna be like in 2040, 2050, or 2070. They have no idea. There are so many challenges, so many obstacles, so many things that could happen. So, but the one thing is for sure, they know that something has to be done and that they have to apply that. And that's why I tell them to pursue what they're passionate about. And don't let anybody, anybody deter you, especially older people tell you, you can't do that, or that's impossible. Nothing is impossible. Uh, if you apply it. And uh, so that's what I'm, uh, I'm hoping that uh, there'll be more and more enlightenment about that. But there has been a lot of change. 1972, we took out a billboard <laughs> in Vancouver and it said, one giant word in yellow, it said ecology. And underneath in smaller letters, look it up, get involved. Nobody even knew what the word ecology meant back then. In 1980, nobody really knew what a vegan was. They thought maybe it was somebody from the planet Vega or something, but it, it was unknown, really. And now you find vegan restaurants in places all over the world, and uh, so, which is really an indication of growing awareness. I believe that a plant-based diet, veganism, and everything is a solution to addressing uh, climate change. Of course, it's a difficult one to sell because, again, our culture is so, uh, you know, set on the fact that we have to eat meat and animal products and that if we don't, it's unhealthy, which is simply not true. I mean, look at the mountain gorilla doesn't eat any meat and nothing, <laughs> there's no human being can eat. They equate the strength of that. In fact, the most strongest, most powerful animals happen to be herbivores. And, you know, maybe, and when people say, well, we, we, we began as a meat eating culture or Perhaps, first of all, we probably began as plant eaters and then we went to meat eaters, but that was then. We don't need that now. There's no place on this planet for 8 billion to 10 or 12 billion meat eating, fish eating primates. It's, a, it's an unnatural state. The, the animal base can simply not support that without gross factory farming operations. And by the way, about 40% of all of the fish that's taken from the ocean is rendered into fish meal, which is fed to pigs and chickens and salmon and other creatures like that. So we live in a world where chickens eat more fish than puffins and albatrosses, where pigs eat more fish than sharks, and where cats, where domestic cats, eat more fish than all the seals in the North Atlantic Ocean. 
You know, and of course, when the fish populations become diminished, who do we blame? Seals, whales, seabirds. Just reduce those populations, that'll solve the problem. Let's just make them the scapegoats for our avarice, for our greed. And uh, so, you know, it's our willful ignorance which is leading to this incredible, this incredible demise. And it is an incredible demise, but for the most part, it's out of sight and out of mind. We, we don't want to see the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We want to continue to live this dream that we're special, that all of this is owed to us. Every other species in this planet owes us something, but we also owe something too. Now, I'm not saying human beings are useless. In fact, one of the things I have come to understand is that uh, uh, there, there is one great use for, for humanity, and that is if we're ever really threatened by a meteorite or an asteroid, we at least have the technological capability to save the planet from that. So that's our, that could be our contribution. But other than that, we've been very, very destructive. And uh, right now there's 4 million fishing vessels out on the ocean, 4 million vessels out on the ocean using everything from 100 mile long gill nets, 100 mile long long lines, giant purse sainers, super trawlers. I mean, ships that cost $200 million to build. You gotta catch a lot of fish in order to pay off the banks that lent you the money for that kind of thing. And it's what I call the economics of extinction, the investment in extinction. There's money to be made by driving species into extinction because scarcity translates into more price, higher prices for demand. Bluefin tuna is a good example, one of the most endangered fish in the sea, but still being fished. And uh, it's um, one bluefin tuna can go for 75, to a million dollars a piece, one fish. So it's the most expensive fish on the, on the planet. And primarily it's being sold in Japan. Now Mitsubishi as a company has about a 10 to 15 year supply of bluefin tuna locked up in freezers in uh, Japan. They could stop fishing today and still have uh, the fish to provide to their customers for the next 10 years. They could easily do that. But here's what happens if they do. The fish population in the sea will begin to increase. And instead of being diminished, there'll be more bluefin tuna, which now will decrease the value of the fish that's in their warehouses. So they don't want to see that. And if the bluefin were to go extinct, <clears throat> then they're sitting on a priceless commodity that they can you know, set their own price. And the fishing industries today, they're not fishermen out in little boats. The fishing industry today is all about short-term investment or short-term gain. Let's get out there and get as much as we can. You know, I was challenging Spanish and Cuban drag trawlers off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland back in the, the 90s. And uh, captain of the Spanish trawler, when confronted about the fact that he was going after northern cod, which were now being protected off of Canada, he said, well, you know, we know they're going to be going extinct, so we might as well make as much money off it as we possibly can. So again, investment uh, in extinction. It's also called the tragedy of the commons. Well, if we don't fish it, then the Canadians will, or the or the uh, Norwegians will, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of contradictions, a lot of things to really deal with. It really comes down to greed, which is driving all, all of this. And this idea that there are no limits to growth, there are no limits to resources, when in fact, we know there is. The uh, we're going to go from here now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so we're, um, I thought, well, I probably could open up to questions right now. Might think of a few things along the line, but uh, yeah, we can open up to questions if you like.
Sure. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you for that very powerful uh, talk. That was uh, that was very moving. So um, we're going to open up to questions. And as part of that, um, before before we do that, I just wanted to um, let people know if you could let people know um, how to find you online and perhaps get involved in your um, in your project in your latest project. Uh, yeah, you can find us on uh, CaptainPaulWatson.com, uh, CaptainPaulWatsonFoundation.com, and just put in Captain Paul Watson, you know, it'll lead it to, and yeah, this is your list of some of my books. Uh, the last one, We Are the Ocean, is a children's book, and uh, uh, I, that's been one of the more important books, I think, that I've, uh, that I've written. Okay, thank you very much. So we're going to open it up to, to the audience if they would like to ask any questions, and um we are i just want to explain real quickly how we do that we are not going to take questions via chat we are going to be using the zoom hand raise so if you don't know how to do that you're going to go to the bottom of the zoom window second to the right you'll see the reactions button and you'll click on that and then select raise hand from the function menu we will take questions in the order in which they received when it's your turn, I will unmute you. I will ask for your name, where you're from, and for you to state your question. We ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. We will then mute you. In order to give everyone a chance to get their question in, we will not allow follow-up questions in the same session. However, if you do wish to ask a follow-up question, you can raise your hand and um, again, and get on the back of the uh, on the back of the line. So, all right. So with that, um, so, all right. So your website is the best way for people to get, get involved with, yes, uh, also be found on Instagram and Twitter and the usual social networks, you know, just put in there. Thank you. And, and what does get involved, getting involved look like for, uh, for people who are interested? Well, there's two ways to get involved. One is crewing on the ship. We have one ship now, but we're going to get more. And also, uh, as shore supporters helping to, uh, you know, to, to work to, uh, you know, finance and uh, to manage the, the ships uh, and that with supplies and things like this. We're basically a Navy, so we need a support base. Okay. Okay, great. So I, I'm sure I, I'm I'm going to say this wrong. Well, actually, I'll just ask you how to say it. The, the oil that they get from sperm whales is what, what kind of oil? Two types of oil, sperm oil and spermaceti oil. The sperm oil comes uh, pressed out of the, the muscles, the blubber, you know, the meat. Uh, but the spermaceti oil is found in the brain, in the, in the head of the whale. Okay. And is there any, you know, you said that they were used for interballistic or intercontinental ballistic missiles, I believe. Yeah, um, oil is very high heat resistant, so it makes an excellent lubricating oil. Uh, there is a plant equivalent, which can be found in jojoba oil, actually. Okay. And are they using that instead? Or are they still just going for the whales? Uh, they're not using it now. So, uh, but the Soviet Union was using it for a long time. Uh, the United States still uses it, but they're, they're, they're going into uh, supplies from decades ago that they've held on to. Thank you. One of our uh, previous speakers was talking about the promise of deep ocean agriculture. What are your thoughts on that? And 
I do know that one of the real problems facing us right now is deep ocean mining and the uh, going after magnesium uh, nodules on the bottom of the ocean, which is going to create incredible uh, ecological havoc on the on the bottom of the ocean, setting up, a, you know, creating uh, debris, uh, dust kind of like which is going to cover everything, causing a lot of lo loss of oxygen is a real problem. Ocean mining is a major problem, but I'm actually not familiar with a deep ocean uh, agriculture. I'm not really familiar. With yeah. That. If someone put it like a, putting a pipe down like 500, 500 feet or so in the water, in the ocean and doing some sort of agriculture down there. Um, I think some of it was, for, you know, with, was with fish and some of it was with, with plants as well. You're not, you're not familiar with that. No, I'm not familiar with it. It sounds intriguing, but uh, no. Okay. Okay. And um, when do you expect the fish population? So, so uh, obviously there's economics that you're talking about in, in the fishing industry. When do you expect that the fish population will be so diminished that these businesses won't be able to sustain themselves on, on the fishing business? Well, we're seeing the uh, the collapse of fishing industries around the world. Like I mentioned before, the northern cod fishery collapsed in 92 and was not recovered. Uh, and so this is happening more and more. Uh, Dr. Boris Worm, Dr. Uh, oh, is it Daniel, mainly Boris Worm, and he uh, pr predicted 2048, but that's been renewed to about 2070. So it's between 2048 and 2070 when they predict the, uh, Daniel is the other oceanographer, fish biologist. Uh, so it's between 2048 and 2070 that they'll have a state of co a commercial collapse of the fishing industry, That not enough fish for the commercial industry to continue to, to go fishing. Personally, I think it'll happen by between 2030, 2040, because we're seeing a steady decline because there's other factors in addition to overfishing, which is uh, noise pollution, chemical pollution, plastic pollution, other things. So there are many factors contributing to that. Okay, and what what do you expect when what do you expect to see as a as a result when when that happens? Will people just stop eating fish at that point? I think we'll probably see worldwide starvation, especially along third uh, third world nations. You know, when they talk about um, a sustainable fishery, what is a sustainable fishery? There's no such thing. I mean, unless you're in a canoe going off the coast of the Congo or out of the Philippines and catching fish by hand, that is sustainable. There's no such thing as commercial sustainability. It's a, it's a word that really doesn't mean anything. For instance, uh, the fishery for Antarctic and Patagonia toothfish, uh, you don't see that on your menus because it's marketed as Chilean sea bass. It's not from Chile and it's not a bass, but that's a marketing term. But uh, they, they catch this fish in the Southern Ocean. Now, we went down to the Southern Ocean 2015 and uh, to go after the most, uh, after six poaching vessels that were taking toothfish. One of the mo most notorious was called the Thunder. As soon as we arrived, it ran and dropped its net. Our other ship picked up that net. It took 200 hours to pull a net from two kilometers from the, uh, from the surface. And that net was 72 kilometers long and weighed 70 tons, one net from one ship. That's the kind of technology that they're using. Now, they, you know, then there's a legal fishery, like austral fisheries and the Japanese go down, they have this so-called legal fishery, which they actually call, have the nerve to call sustainable. But how do you call a fish sustainable that's caught in the Southern Ocean and taken back to land and then is put onto an airplane and flown in a frozen compartment to Paris, to London, to New York, to be served in exclusive restaurants. That's not sustainable. It's an heavily carbon intensive uh, practice. And it's, you know, it's, there's no need for it. There really is no need for it. Uh, 
it. And uh, so, you know, when this fishing industry says, well, people are dependent upon fishing. Yes, millions of people are, but not their, not their customers. We're talking about people who actually are dependent upon fisheries, people in West Africa or East Africa, and, you know, in the Philippines, places like that, where they actually need it. And that would cause serious problems if they disappear. And the reason they're going to be disappearing is because the greed of the fishing industry. Last year, we caught a super trawler in the Bay of Biscay, got on it just at the right time. It had emptied its net, it had dropped its net, and 150,000 blue whiting were floating on the surface dead. Why? It was a bycatch. They didn't want blue whiting. They were caught by accident, so just dump them. The, the, the bycatch in the commercial fishing industry is enormous. For every kilo of prawns and shrimp, look at 22 kilos of something else that was destroyed in the process of catching that. So it's a very highly destructive uh, industry, this commercial fishing operation. And it's also a good percentage of the marine debris, the plastics in the oceans come from the fishing industry. I remember as a child, I could walk the beaches in Eastern Canada, you know, I was raised in a fishing village and uh, never saw a piece of plastic ever. The fish flows were made out of glass and the, the nets were made out of uh, biodegradable growth. Of course, that doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Okay. So we have a question from our audience. So Mona, please state your, your name, your, uh, where you're from and ask your question. Hi, Mona A. Rant from Savannah, Georgia. I was curious, Paul, if you were uh, attaching your message to any of the uh, documentaries that are done by the plant-based communities. Uh, I actually would think it would benefit. I would like to see that. And also, I have, I've not ate fish or anything like that in the last year. I've given it up. But many of my friends are still eating what they consider the wild catch. And they feel like they're doing a service by eating wild catch as opposed to farmed. Your thoughts on that? Well, the answer to your first one is that, uh, you know, we've been very much involved. We are producers on the film Sea Spiracy. Uh, we're involved in uh, chasing the, in the water, in the movie Sharkwater by uh, Rob Stewart. And so we've been involved with many, many documentaries uh, over the years and we'll continue to do so. And plus we had our own television show, Whale Wars on Animal Planet for a while. And, uh, the, uh, what was the second part of the question? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that the second part of the question was uh, the wild caught. Oh, well, you know, commercial fishing, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, if it's well caught, it's caught intensively through these uh, heavy gear technologies. I mean, to be actually, you know, I don't advocate it, but to be absolutely, um, you know, objective about it, I think that well caught Alaska salmon is probably the only one that I would say is, not that destructive because of, primarily because of the hatcheries uh, in Alaska and also because Alaska doesn't have fish farms like British Columbia does where the, the wild salmon populations are in, in uh, diminished are being diminished in the coast of British Columbia but are not being diminished in uh, Alaska and I think that the, the lack of those salmon farms is a contributing factor to that. Um, let's say that the fish industry, if you will, becomes unsustainable due to the uh, the population collapse of, of the fish. How long do you think it would be before they start to, re to regain numbers in the ocean? Well, the ocean can revitalize uh, quite uh, rapidly. Uh, the two best times for revitalization in the 20th century were World War I and World War II, when the fishes actually made a remarkable comeback in very little time. 
So the answer is leave them alone. Let's leave them alone. I would call for at least a moratorium of 50 years to allow all those fish populations to recover. And, uh, but they're not gonna recover with the kind of uh, demand and exploitation that we're, that we're seeing right now. You know, why, one of the reasons why the Northern Cod will not recover is because that particular species, you know, when you caught a Northern Cod, say uh, in, 20, in 1910, it was probably about a meter, a meter and a half long. Now, probably 18 inches is what you get. I mean, the, the old ones have all been taken. And what they discovered is that the older fish actually were very important to the younger fish for guiding them to the places that they needed to go for breeding, for feeding and that kind of thing. So you're like wiping out all of the elders in, the, in that population. And that has caused all kinds of chaos within, the, within those populations. We forget that uh, fish have highly uh, complex social uh, structures. Uh, they're not they're not stupid animals, you know, and um, and so the, the when you disrupt that kind of ecosystem, then you cause all sorts of sorts of problems. So many uh, many of the species have not recovered, probably won't recover at least for some time. But I do believe that the ocean has is strong. Ocean ecosystems are strong and can recover, and uh, but we, they only can do so if we leave them alone. So it sounds like I, I know with elephants. You know, they have the elder elephants, know all the water sources they've got, you know, they're known for having crazy memories. Um, so fish are, are kind of like that, where they have intergenerational knowledge that they pass on. So when we take out the older ones, you're saying that you know, when we leave the younger ones, they don't know where they're going. So even if they were able to reproduce, they may not know where to go in order to to have their uh, lay their eggs and and. It's very complex. It's very complex. Some some fish are highly in, instinctual, like the salmon. They're born here. They go back to where they came from. But they're probably a print left by their parents at the time, you know, something that brings them back to that. But uh, every species is is different. And uh, some uh, some have to be taught. Some have to be led. So you're talking about the uh, phytoplankton and it's diminished by 40% and how that's kind of a, the the base food for the whole food chain in the ocean. Is there a way to rebuild it? Is it just leaving it alone? Is there something that people could do? Well, the more whales, the more dolphins, the more seabirds, the more fish, the more nutrients will be provided. And that will, of course, uh, feed the phytoplankton and that. Uh, it could be more than 40% because the last uh, scientific survey on that was in 2010. And that's when they, they, it was cited that it was a 40% diminishment. I haven't seen a, uh, a survey since then, but I don't think it's gone up. I mean, it, it's gone down. Where, where does public opinion stand on, on this? Are people aware of how severe this issue is? And when they learn about it, what, what kind of support do you have? I know you had, you know, that the, uh, the whaling wars, I believe it was, or, or was the TV well, show. The average person doesn't even know what phytoplankton is, really. Uh, but, you know, and of course, it's a lot easy to uh, get public support on whales and sharks and uh, seals, either because they're cute or they're fascinating, that kind of thing. It's hard to really get people uh, enthusiastic about sea cucumbers and jellyfish. <laughs> well, so, I, I was referring to, I was referring to the whole ocean issue, really. Yeah. Not just, not just, I, was, I wasn't referring to like t-shirts saying, you know, save the phytoplankton, not not just yet. We're not, we're not going not quite there. But I think generally people are not fully aware of the situation in the ocean and how dire, dire it is. We're land-based species. We tend not to 
think about that. That's one of the reasons I put that children's book together to, to, to show that we are the ocean. The ocean surrounds us. This is the ocean planet. Okay, thank you. I'm going to open it up to the audience. All right, um, Britt, are you there? Yeah, hi. Okay. Hi, my name is Britt. I'm uh, an hour north of uh, Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario. Um, it's kind of interesting to hear you. This is the first time I've uh, really uh, connected with your uh, your side of the story because I used to work in Ottawa in the Department of Fisheries and Environment when that whole Bridget Bardot story came out. And they were saying, um, oh, well, that, that, that baby seal's gonna die because she touched it and the mother's gonna reject it. Uh, <laughs> So they were like painting that whole story uh, really badly. And um, I don't know, uh, I just wanna ask, what is your opinion about the uh, Inuit uh, indigenous rights for whaling? Uh, Indeed, well, indigenous whaling is legal and therefore we don't oppose it. Uh, but uh, my own personal views is I'm against it. I don't think there's enough whales in the world to justify anybody hunting them. So my position is I'm opposed to whaling by anybody for any reason, wherever they want to kill them. I mean, the whale doesn't care what your culture is. Uh, and to go after 200 year old bowhead whales, uh, which are an endangered species cannot be justified uh, for any reason, I don't think. It's interesting, I worked for the, I used to call it the DFO, the Department of Fishy Business. But <laughs> yeah, they did say a lot of things about uh, if you touch a seal, it's gonna die. But except for the fact that we uh, saw that fisheries biologists were going out and, and putting dye on the seals to uh, for population uh, assessments. And so that's why we got the idea to put an indelible dye on them to uh, to destroy the commercial value of the pelt, which worked quite well. And um, also I've, um, I've seen mother seals actually stay with the skinned bodies of their babies, uh, babies for up to uh, three days, you know, so you know, the, there's a real connection between the mothers and the pups that are being killed here. And uh, I've observed uh, seals that have been picked up, I pick them up and move them, and they were still doing pretty good a week later. So, you know, they're not like tiny birds and even that I think is a myth. So it's, uh, they're not going to be rejected because of that. So um, in your talk, you were mentioning ships that were in uh, in waters that were, um, I guess, you were able to carry out these uh, these missions. They, they were, I guess, they were fishing or whaling in uh, in areas that they weren't supposed to, or doing something they weren't supposed to. How many of these ships do you, do you, um, uh, would you guess are are out there? Oh, we know exactly how many. I mean, there's two ships operating out of. Uh out of Iceland. There's a bunch of smaller boats operating out of Norway and Japan has uh, four harpoon vessels and they're right now in the process of uh, building a $67 million factory ship to return to the Southern Ocean. So yeah, we keep tabs on all of those vessels and where they are and what they're doing. So I think you said there's something like 7 million ships or something like that on the, on the ocean? Fishing boats, yes. Fishing boats. So there's only a very small number of, are those are whaling boats? Is that different to? Well, okay. And how do you keep track of, of whaling boats? Oh, there's a number of ways to do it. I mean, we can tr keep track of them through the, uh, the ship tracking systems. Uh, we can track a ship anywhere in the world where it doesn't matter what the ship is. And also through uh, SkyTruth, which is uh, a satellite operation which uh, can track vessels. At. So we were able to find the, the whaling fleet down in the Southern Ocean, which uh, 
is extremely difficult. I, I guess the best way to really uh, describe how difficult it is, is try and find, uh, say, a car somewhere in the United States, having no idea where it is, but all you've got is a bicycle. <laughs> and that's how difficult it is. But uh, we've managed over the years to find ways to track them down electronically and uh, through uh, a network of people of informants and that kind of thing. Okay. And what about um, ocean um, acidification? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a really thing, a climate change issue, which is causing, um, yeah, uh, as the oceans become acidified, uh, that, of course, leads to the the destruction, especially of corals, and and, and affects uh, crustacean uh, and invertebrate creatures more than anything. But it does eventually can make life unlivable in that area. Uh, I mean, another problem that I mentioned is the fact of the, the removal of oxygen from the ocean, which is caused by agricultural runoff, and uh, and that it creates dead zones where the fish really have no oxygen to breathe. Okay, and what other organizations are there are out there that you would suggest for people to get involved in like say like people aren't necessarily you know aren't looking to get on a boat in order to get involved but they do want to get involved what else would you suggest um, parley for the oceans is a good organization they're addressing uh, really uh, plastics in the ocean trying to find alternatives and uh, you know collecting plastics and that setting up educational projects so we're, we're working with them uh, in, in that respect uh, but i would say that if you want to get involved, look in your own community. There's, there's environmental conservation groups in every community, and the smaller ones are probably the most effective ones. The bigger the organizations become, the more uh, bureaucratic they become and the less they do. <laughs> so strangely enough, the smaller groups get more done than the bigger groups. Do you oh, find I that? Also, I would also recommend uh, Sylvia Earle's uh, Project Blue is another good one. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I, I remember, I believe that it would may have been in in Cowspiracy or or one of one of those types of movies where he was talking about um, the. Uh, I, I don't know the name of the organization, so I don't want to say it. But one of the major, the larger organizations were actually suggesting to eat fish. Is that? Yeah, that's uh, Oceana. I think Oceana. How does that come about? The Marine Stewardship Council and that. Uh, when you really look into it, look at the funding base. You know, uh, seafood industry does provide donations to nonprofit organizations uh, that are involved with uh, with this. Uh, you know, I especially have suspicious of groups like Marine Stewardship Council, where they will give a company an endorsement, but behind that endorsement is also a donation. Okay, and um, are there any governments that are that are tackling? overfishing and these other issues um, such as, you know, ocean acidification, killing whales, uh, the coral reef, coral reef issues, all those, any of those issues. Are there any governments? If so, which ones and what are they doing right? And if not, why not? Well, I think uh, there are governments that are paying a lot of lip service to this. And I would say in the United States that the enforcement agencies are pretty good. Uh, you know, to stop any illegal fishing within American waters. I think that, uh, you know, ha I've seen that that isn't really a problem because of those enforcement agencies, whether they be state or, or federal. The same is true in, say, in, in Europe and places where you have local fisheries agencies, and we've worked with some of them in the past. But generally, overall, there's a lack of um, political and economic motivation to really, to really do anything about the problem. Oh, give me an example. Uh, last, uh, two months ago, we shut down the French trawling fleet's fishery, which was killing thousands of dolphins. 
And uh, this was illegal. It was illegal under French law. It was illegal under European Union law. So why were they able to get away with it year after year after year? So what I, my advice uh, to the activists working with me there was, okay, these dolphin bodies are washing up on the beaches. Nobody sees them. They're out of sight, out of mind. Bring them to the Eiffel Tower. Bring them to the steps of the National Assembly. Bring them to the European Parliament. And that's what they did. And that got their attention. And uh, just a month and a half ago, the uh, French government outlawed the, the, uh, that particular fishery. The result is, of course, a lot of death threats and threats to burn people's. I think one, one environmental groups had their, uh, had their offices burned by the fishermen. And that, because it's dangerous when you, when you get to achieve these kind of uh, victories, but they have to be done. That fishery is killing thousands of dolphins uh, every year. And uh, that was, and it's called bycatch. That's what they, oh, that's just bycatches. Yeah, that's what they call it. So I believe that's the industry name. I've also heard it called by kill by, at least in the vegan community, because, you know, it's essentially what it is, right? Um, so um, how do you, okay, so you have people out there who are, who are you know, the fishermen, you're saying fishermen as opposed to the companies, the fishermen need jobs, they're fishermen, perhaps they see that, you know, that is their, their only livelihood. How do you balance or how do you get these people on your side um, when their when their livelihood is affected by you stopping them for what you know what seems very like very valid reasons for the larger picture? Well, it's pretty hard to change the mind of anybody who's collecting a paycheck to be doing what they're doing, <laughs> you know. So for for obvious reasons, but uh, you know, yes, these fishermen have been uh, put out of work in that particular area, but it's balanced against do we so do we allow the uh, the dolphins to live and thrive, or do we allow them to go extinct so these guys can have a job? I mean, if, uh, 70 years from now, is that going to be the thing? Well, at least we had jobs, you know. <laughs> but uh, overall, it's going to uh, lead to more and more people being put out of work and having a hard time living because of the collapse of the eco structure and everything supporting everybody. And that, so, you know, if people don't like. Uh, don't want to fish i find something else to do it i remember i remember a newfoundland fisherman say well what do you expect me to do after all these years find another job and i just said yeah yeah find another job because this one isn't sustainable and you now you mentioned earlier in in um in the q a that these smaller populations will be impacted uh like people who are actually like surviving off of catching fish as opposed to the the people who are you know eating fish once or twice a week because it's you know because they heard it was good for them or they they like the taste of salmon what do you think will be the impact though on those people you know where i mean the, the in the in the wealthier countries where the, there's a lot more power for something to happen well let's look at the economics let's take the uh, the northern cod for example you know for 300 years uh, fishermen from europe and everything came over to the grand banks of newfoundland to catch fish. And I would say up until 1950, they did the same thing every time. It was going out there, hook and line catch, bringing them back. And that industry was, the, the fish populations didn't crash. Then they moved in the, dry, dry, the drag trawlers, the midwater trawlers, these giant ships. That's what destroyed them, not the small fishing operations. Now, let's again look at the economics. What is one fish worth? Uh, say you're uh, catching fish off of uh, British Columbia or the Northern Cod in Newfoundland. One fish can be worth $40, $50, you know? So how many fish does a fisherman have to catch in one day to have uh, to support his family and everything? Three or four, maybe five and everything. But that's not how it works. Thousands of them are being brought in by nets, which are only employing a handful of people. 
So mm -hmm. what you have is something that could, if you support fishing, could uh, support these people's jobs pretty much forever if you just do it in the way it always has been done. Uh, like uh, the, the way it was done off of it, for instance, in the book, Captain Courageous, uh, you know, about uh, the cod fishery and that sort of thing. So it's again, it's the same with forestry. What is one tree worth? Um, one tree can be worth, uh, you know, three or four thousand dollars. I mean, how many trees do you have to cut down in order to support your family? But clear cutting is not the answer. Go in and wipe everything out, put it on a barge and send it to Japan or China for, for processing. That is certainly not sustainable. So there are ways of uh, providing jobs by doing a low impact uh, exploitation instead of a, a smart one. Personally, I'm opposed to fishing uh, by anyone anywhere, <laughs> but, but there are, I'm not completely ignorant to the fact that it is a necessity in other places and especially to places where they don't really have anything other than that. So, okay. And, and um, so how can we hold corporations accountable for their environmental impact? Is, is anyone doing that? Can it be done? Well, again, let's look at British Columbia as a good example. The herring industry is being overfished. They're just taking far more than they need. And why is this happening? Because that whole industry is, con is controlled by one man, a guy named Jimmy Patterson. Where did he come from? He was a used car salesman. So he's taking his profits from selling cars got control of the fishing industry, basically tells the Department of Fisheries notions what to do and takes what he wants. And, uh, you know, so when you have all of these fishing operations are in the control of this, just a small handful of people, you know, very wealthy people who are controlling it. The killing of whales in Iceland is controlled by Christian Lofsen, who's the wealthiest man in Iceland. He doesn't need to kill whales, you know, he, is, he has more money than he needs. But, you know, that's why we call him the Captain Ahab of Iceland, because he just loves to kill whales. But uh, there's enough out there to provide people with jobs if it's done small scale. And without this industrial industrialized operations, which are basically destroying life in the sea. Okay. And besides getting involved in an organization and, and stopping eating fish, per se, are there any other ways that individuals can help um, preserve the the ocean environment and and the wildlife of course when you uh eat, stopping eating fish doesn't mean you're stopping eating fish because if you eat hamburgers or if you eat eggs or if whatever you're eating fish because of the fish are being fed to these animals in order to to produce them but i think that uh yeah uh, in addition to not eating fish uh supporting organizations especially those in your own small community there's also just applying yourself to what you're, you're passionate about. And, you know, if you're a lawyer, if you're a teacher, if you're a filmmaker, then you do that and make that as your contribution to making this a better world. That's what we're all capable of doing. And it doesn't have to be fish. It could be anything. It can be protecting a, a river system. It can be protecting frogs. It, it doesn't really matter. Find what you're really passionate about. One of my, my favorite examples is David Wingate in Bermuda back in the, in the 80s. He applied himself to protecting a highly endangered species called the Bermuda Caja or the storm petrel. And uh, if not for him, that, that species would be extinct. Now, I can't think of anything more noble than the fact that you got involved and you worked to protect a species and you saved it. That is a lasting legacy. And, it, and I think something that your family and you know, going into the future would be very, very proud of that accomplishment.
So uh, I've got one more question, and then we're going to end the the Q and A. Um, which is, you, you mentioned that you were an, you were optimistic. What would be a a reason for our audience? Because we hear all this stuff, and it sounds scary. It seems dire. What would be a a cause for optimism given this situation? Well, first of all, we haven't the ability to destroy the planet. The planet will survive, and uh, so it's all about saving ourselves from ourselves. So uh, it will it will recover. Uh, we'll take a lot of species with us, but again. According to these uh, earlier uh, mass extinction events, the planet will survive. So not concerned about the planet, but will we survive? Will our children's children survive? And that's where we really have to apply ourselves. And uh, that means uh, I think cultivating a biocentric point of view, this understanding that we're part of everything and rejecting these uh, anthropocentric concepts that we're better than everything else, that we're the center of everything and that we're more important than every every other species. I think that's really the key to it is rejecting anthropocentrism, replacing it with biocentrism. Uh, towards that, I actually set up my own church called the Church of Biocentrism too. It's not really a church in the traditional sense, but it's there to advance the idea that uh, we have to live in harmony with all other species. Okay, well, I would love to go there someday. Thank you very much for for your talk today. It was uh, it was very impactful. Um, I I just want to open up the mic so that the audience can can also say thank you for your time, uh, Captain Watson. Thank you.